you are seated, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, along with Psalm 23 and uh, maybe John 3.16, we come to maybe the most famous passage in the entire Bible. You probably have heard it uh, as part of a wedding ceremony and many weddings, despite the fact that in the original context, it had nothing to do with a wedding. Um, certainly applies to a husband and wife, certainly, but that's not why Paul was writing this hymn of love. He was writing it because of this dissension-filled, uh, fraction-filled, divided church called the Church of Corinth, uh, bickering and fighting constantly. And in a church, one of the largest Greco-Roman cities at that time, think about this, about 100,000 people fit into a four-mile isthmus, this small plot of land connecting two larger pieces of, pieces of land. Uh, very strategic city, uh, central to land and sea trade routes, which is why Rome rebuilt it after they destroyed it, because they realized we need that city. And it quickly proved to be true as people flocked there to, to make it, to prove that they are successful. A city that was rebuilt from scratch so you didn't have centuries of history and nobility that kind of laid the foundation for the city. It was a city where you show up and prove yourself, Uh, a city where anything goes, and uh, a city that uh, the verb to Corinthianize or Corinthianize meant to uh, live a life of total moral depravity, just no rules. It was the Wild West, basically. And Paul goes to the city around 50 AD to preach the gospel and make disciples and plant a church, a city so difficult the Lord had to speak to Paul in a vision in Acts 18 to encourage him not to give up. There were still many people in the city who had come to know Christ, and it was happening. People were coming out of this anything-goes culture and coming into the church. The problem was it became an anything-goes church, and uh, we're seeing that just unfold through the pages of this letter, just problem after problem that he's dealing with, because they brought the anything-goes culture into the church instead of letting the gospel saturate them. It was the paganism and the licentious lifestyles that they had lived before. And the one overarching problem we've seen throughout this letter is disunity and division. And the one overarching solution is what Paul is going to describe and prescribe in this chapter. And that is love. Love that is selfless and others-oriented, which only comes to us from God through His Son Jesus and the Gospel. I'll tell you, if you're like me, and you start squirming in your soul this morning as we walk through this passage... Because you see ways in which you haven't or don't love others well. Or you see ways in which you you don't receive love from others well. Don't run to do more, try harder. Run to God. Run to the gospel. Run to Jesus. That is the source of this love. Let his love fill your heart and mind and then his love becomes the engine for everything that you do. That's how important selfless love is. It it is the greatest virtue and absolutely must characterize us as a church or we are done. There's no point to any of this. That's not a statement of hyperbole or an exaggeration to shock you. Like literally, if this love doesn't characterize us, this is a waste of time. And as someone who loves efficiency, sometimes too much, 
You're telling me this might be a waste of time? I'm going to find something better to do. But the flip side is, if love does characterize us, then we can shake this city. We can shake the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ as a church. So, let's pray. Father, we need your help, obviously. This passage is an amazing description and beautiful description of what love is supposed to characterize us as your people. Father, I pray that the the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, would apply this accurately, rightly to every heart that is here. That that none of my words would add unnecessary guilt or condemnation or shame, that only the Spirit would bring that where there is sin, but then that the Spirit would also bring life and repentance and forgiveness and hope and joy because the gospel is still true and you are still forgiving sinners and you still love to shape and transform people's lives. So do that today, Father, because you love us way beyond we could ever ask or imagine. Do that today because we're your kids. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we see is that love is essential in verses 1 through 3. Love is essential. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul gives a list of incredible, almost preposterous-sounding spiritual gifts. Gifts miraculous in nature, gifts that would show up in tremendous ways, speaking with the tongues of men, and even better, speaking with the tongues of angels. Now, Paul isn't necessarily saying it's possible to communicate with the tongues of angels. Ultimately, though, even if we could, nobody would know if we are, because nobody knows what the language of angels sound like. One day we will, but right now we don't. If someone were given the gift of tongues to be used in private where no interpretation was needed as praise and communion with God in prayer, maybe it's angelic language, maybe it isn't. But for the Corinthians, they seem to believe it was, and so Paul is referring to this gift in its highest form. And Paul says, even if I were speaking with the greatest, most gifted speaking ability possible, but without love, I'm just an aggravating, annoying, clanging symbol or gong. Like who celebrates when their kid comes home and says, hey, mom or dad, I want to take up the gong. I want to play the cymbals. Can I buy you a PlayStation instead? (laughs) Something other than that. Even the neighbors would be sad about that. But that's what that gift, oratory skill, sounds like without love. It's just aggravating and annoying. It's not helpful. Paul goes on to list another highly gifted prize, uh, a gift that's highly prized in Corinth, and that by Paul himself, as we'll see in chapter 14, prophecy and knowledge to the utmost in order to be able to understand all mysteries and knowledge, know exactly what God wants us to do in every situation. How nice would that be? To know perfectly the will of God in every decision we have to make. To have a knowledge that is so complete and full, there are no more mysteries. We, we, it's all been solved. Everything is clear. 
This coming from Paul, who writes some of the most intricate, thick theological writing ever recorded in Romans 1 through 11, and he ends that section, Romans 11:33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Paul, whose Romans 1 through 11 still has us scratching our heads and arguing with each other, even he knows the limits of his knowledge. But even at its apex, if it's done without love, Or faith, to do as Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed, to do something as extraordinary as move a mountain from here to there, to see God interact with our world in miraculous ways without love is actually worth nothing. Lastly, to sell your possessions, to take care of the poor and needy. Surely someone can't do that and not be loving. Or to deliver your body to be burned, to suffer a martyr's death. Surely someone dies for what they believe in, it's got to be motivated by love. Yet Paul says they can all be done without love and be worth nothing. Not something, not a little bit. The language is clear, nothing. So what you see here is the absolute essentialness of love in producing genuine spiritual fruit while not necessary for spiritual giftedness. Love is essential if you want spiritual fruit, but it's not necessary if you are spiritually gifted. Remember the context of 1 Corinthians 13. It's in the middle of this discussion on the use of spiritual gifts in the local church, primarily in this setting, a worship gathering of the entire body. And when the church is gathered to worship, they are exercising these spiritual gifts in improper ways. So in chapter 12, he's laid out what spiritual gifts are, these manifestations of the Spirit of God through, through which we see God's power made public. God going public is the way we talked about it. They're given as God determines. They're incredibly varied, but given to help the one body of Christ with many members thrive and flourish in doing the work of God in this world. And he's going to continue with instruction in chapter 14 related to specific spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy. But chapter 13 is smack dab in the middle of 12 and 14. It's the meat of the sandwich. And and that's intentional. This is very common in biblical writing, this ABA format, where the, 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 the truth that's in the middle, even this chapter, chapter 13 is written like this. The truth in the middle is the focus that Paul wants to get across. So yeah, I'm dealing with the spiritual issues, the spiritual gift issues, yes, but here's what I really want you to hear. Love has to govern this. Love has to drive this. And he's showing us that the presence of spiritual gifts does not assure the presence of spiritual fruit, and the determining factor is the presence of love. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean you're fruitful. What makes the difference is is it driven by love? In reality, you don't even have to be a, a Christian to have these gifts. You don't have to be a Christian to be gifted in these ways. All of these gifts are manifested in other religions. You see them showing up all the time. Even Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 22-23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Incredibly gifted. Signs and wonders and powers. And Jesus says, you're not mine. Judas, one of the original 12 who were sent out two by two as 12 and then later part of the group of 72 sent out two by two to do what? Go from town to town proclaiming the gospel and perform many mighty works in the name of Jesus. Judas was always the son of perdition, always the one ordained who would be this betrayer, never 
a believer in Jesus. The presence of spiritual gifts could mean you're a child of God or not. But to produce spiritual fruit, love is essential. Like it's really amazing to think about that. We can be incredibly busy, seemingly productive, and in terms of God and his kingdom, getting nothing done. Nothing. We would look great on the outside if it's not done in love. Love is essential to produce anything of lasting value. Now, why is love so essential and so necessary? Hang on to that question. We're going to come back to that. But to hear the warning and encouragement, but, but hear the warning and encouragement to two types of people today. To those here who have more visible gifts like, like what I'm doing right now or musical leadership or, or people who are gifted in such a way, called in such a way that they, they have no trouble being out front leading a group of people to do something. So whatever, however that looks, if that's you, there's a grave danger to operate in these gifts apart from love. Because you know you have those gifts and you know you can do it. And maybe even occasionally you show up and do it. And, and the scary thing is sometimes people still benefit even though you know you're not being driven by love in that moment. You're just going through the motions, getting the job done. The scary thing is people still benefit and you don't crash and burn. And so you begin to think, oh, I'm okay. God must be blessing And to continue forward using those gifts while your heart grows cold and calloused with a false sense of blessing and security will make your heart even more cold and calloused because you begin to think, I don't need God. And we will applaud you because you're operating in your giftedness, out front leading while you're accomplishing nothing for the kingdom. It would be better, if you, if you think about giftedness and on a scale of 0 to 10, it would be better to have a guy with gifting levels at 5 whose heart passionately burns for Jesus than a guy who's at 9 or 10 and it's intermittent, on and off. If you are a gifted leader, if you're leading other people, it is absolutely essential that your heart stays connected to Christ, that you are immersing yourself in the Word, immersing yourself in prayer, There are people in your life who know you and holding you accountable. There are people in your life spurring you on who are checking your heart. Because your gifts can just operate without love and and actually do nothing. This is also an encouragement to those who don't have those gifts that are very public. And you're tempted to be envious because you wish you were that person. Know that what is really needed in the church is love. Okay? God is going to supply the gifts that we need to accomplish his work. Because he's God. He's sovereign. He knows what he can accomplish. He knows what he wants to accomplish. So he's going to give us exactly what we need, when we need it, to do the work that he's called us to do at that moment in time. Gifts are limited. Love isn't. Even the most gifted leader has a limit to what they can do. They're one person. They're going to die. They're only limited to so many people they can impact. So much of a reach of their, their, their ministry or calling. 
Love is unlimited. Jesus said that his followers would be known by their love. Love is what changes the world. Love is what changes our hearts. There's no limit to how much love of God that you can enjoy and how much you can share with others. And so for those who don't have what would seem to be the most public or desirable gifts, it's okay. Just love people in Christ like crazy and you will be absolutely indispensable. And this church will thrive because you're loving people like that. Love is essential. But for all of us, it is a good thing to ask about everything that we do. Why am I doing this? Like, not just spiritual gifts, but why am I going to work? Why, am I, why are you here today? Why am I in this relationship with this person? Why am I in school? Why am I pursuing this particular degree? Why do I want kids? Why do I have kids? Why do I want to be married? Why am I married? Why am I sitting here listening to a sermon? Why am I preaching a sermon? And if we can't honestly say, I'm doing this for love, in love, if it's not love as the engine, then we should seriously evaluate what we're accomplishing. Seriously evaluate what we're accomplishing. Paul would say you have great reason to question what's being produced. Why are you doing this? Is it for love and in love that flows from God the Father through His Son Jesus? Love is essential if we're going to see our actions have lasting eternal reward. Absolutely essential. The language of the first three verses is language of judgment. Notice in each case, Paul is is not saying the gift is being judged, but the person. The, The gifts are critical and good. He's not being critical of the gifts, as we'll see in chapter 14. They are important, but they're not ultimate and not good apart from love. His problem isn't the gifts, but the engine driving the gifts. So look at the passage again and and notice who's under judgment here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Who's under judgment? The person, not the gift. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Love is essential if we're going to accomplish anything of value in God's eyes. What kind of love is needed? If love is so important, well, what does this love look like? And and love is one of those words that uh, it's been so diluted in our culture that it almost means anything. Like, I I love my wife. I love my kids. I love a good medium rare filet. I love basketball. I love um, um, you. I love my job. I love, you know, whatever. So if I'm an alien from another planet and I'm now asked to define the word love, what does love mean? I have a connection with all those things? I don't know. So what does love mean? Paul doesn't define love in this passage as much as describes love with a series of 15 statements, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now what is missing from this list is emotion or sentimentality. Ooey-gooeyness, you might say. Hallmark, channel, rom-com type ooeyness. This is just raw, bare-bones behavior and attitude adjustments. 
But unlike the Greco-Roman world that did not value this kind of love, where rational thought ruled supreme, where apathy was actually a virtue more highly prized than agape love. So think Dwight Schrute in the early years of the office before we knew he had a heart. Just a robot doing whatever he wants to do. You can imagine how stark a contrast this kind of agape love would have been. In the church today, sometimes we say things like, well, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. As, that, as though that can be some kind of excuse for our dutiful devotion, do the right thing even when we don't feel like it. Now, certainly we are controlled. We shouldn't be controlled or driven by emotions. There is a time and place to do the right thing regardless of how you feel. But is it really loving if we're doing the right thing and our heart and attitude toward this person that we're going to be spending eternity with is, I'm only doing this because it's right, not because I, I like you. But, oh, this is love, by the way. Men, would that work with your spouses? The answer is no, just in case you're wondering. Emotions should accompany this kind of love. The Bible says serve the Lord with gladness, right? In fact, as we dig into this description, I don't see if you're really, if the Spirit of God overwhelms you with the love of God and frees you up from your fears, insecurities, your concerns about being vulnerable with other people, I don't see how it's possible for you to demonstrate this kind of love to other people without being overwhelmed with joy. And gladness. And, and at times, I know we've experienced that. Like, man, I loved loving that person like that. That was so much fun. And that's the life God is calling us into. Where the norm, that's the norm. The norm is not, oh, I'm going to do this. Yeah, there's times like that. But it always leads to the joy and the gladness. Love is patient and kind. Patient being the passive response toward others. We bear the weight of those who cause us trouble or inconvenience. Our response to who they are is not rashness or irritability, but waiting for God to work in their life. Patience is not me driving in traffic. Needs to be me driving in traffic. But wishing for missile launchers on my car to remove uh, drivers out of my way is not patient. And so patience is allowing them to do their thing. Get out of the way. Drive, drive well. Be safe. Be kind. Kindness is the active side of this. We reach out to demonstrate compassion and mercy. Patience waits while the fire is flaring up and doesn't demonstrate anger. Kindness moves in to extinguish the fire with t- tender-hearted compassion. Two sides of the same coin, kindness and patience. Love does not envy. There's a lack of jealousy and quarreling or coveting who they are or what they have. And You see them posting on social media. You genuinely celebrate God's goodness and grace in their life with them, not longing and wishing away the celebration because it's not your life, your gifting, your calling. Love does not boast. It's not self-flattering or braggadocious about oneself, heaping praise on oneself, humble bragging about who you are or what you've done, thinking more highly of yourself than you think highly of others. Love is not arrogant, proud, or puffed up. Paul is the only New Testament writer to use this word, and of the seven times he uses it in his letters, six of the occurrences are in this letter. It was a problem for Corinth, an exaggerated self-conception, obsessing about the status and attention that you're receiving. How highly are others thinking of me is the proud and puffed up person. Am I getting my recognition and due? Love is not rude. It's not involved in behavior that is disgraceful, indecent, or dishonorable. 
something that's only intended for privacy of our lives, is brought into the open, this poor taste, because again, this arrogant person cares more about themselves than, than what they want, than, and what they want than the decency of the gathering that they're in. Love does not insist on its own way, as we saw in chapter 10. Love is not mainly concerned with the interests and desires and freedoms of self as much as the interests of others. Love is seeking the good of the other, the building up and encouragement of the other. Love pursues the welfare of the other. Love is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, self-worth, but the gain and worth of those around them. Love doesn't make a list of things about me that you have to know about me because if you don't do those things, then you don't really love me. Love doesn't insist on its own way or create hoops for other people to jump through because letting people love you is as valuable as loving other people. Love is not irritable, not easily angered, but patient, forbearing. Love is not resentful. Some translations, I think, better say love keeps no record of wrongs. So love doesn't write down the evils committed against it. And love doesn't assume that the love there of others, the, the, love doesn't assume that the, those that they love are going to act in evil. It's not holding up an evil card against others, but ultimately allowing God to balance the scales of justice. It doesn't live wanting to balance the scales myself. I have to make this right. I don't reckon your sins against me because God doesn't reckon my sins against me. We're both free. So I don't see you in light of your sins. I see you in light of your love and the love the Father has for both of us. Love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love, love doesn't just rejoice at the ultimate truth. Yes, the person and work of Christ and Christianity, but when truth, righteousness, win out and shine brightly in this world. God hates injustice. God is truth. And so love rejoices when there is right relationships with God and right relationships between other people. Love implies a commitment to see God's justice flourish because we live under the rule and reign of a good king. And so love doesn't gloat or have malicious joy when people fail or stumble. And love doesn't take pleasure in condemning those who fail, but is, is tender and sympathetic. Like with your kids, your kids mess up because they're kids. So you don't shame or condemn them when they mess up. And when they get it right, you throw a party. Yes. They, they get that, parties and celebrations when they get it right, that's the music in their ears more than the shame and condemnation when they get it wrong. Love bears all things. So, so be careful with verse 7 because taken to the extreme, it can make verse 7 sound like love is a doormat that sits by quietly while sin flourishes and says nothing. That, that's not love. The idea behind bearing all things and enduring all things is more like patiently not being self-defensive, making allowances not giving in or caving. You might think of it as love is not going to give in to apathy through the difficulties of relationships. It's going, to, it's going to shoulder on. It's going to shoulder on. Love believes all things. Again, not naive gullibility. The earth is flat. Crazy stuff like that. But love never ceases to have faith, which doesn't mean you trust everyone, but you give people the benefit of doubt until the facts are known. Love doesn't live with suspicion or assume the worst about everybody. Love hopes all things. Again, not naive optimism or pie in the sky hoping for the best, but this rock-solid confidence in the one with whom our future is secure that no matter what happens to us, no matter what we go through, our future is always bright. Always. 
no matter how dark it may get before that bright future, better days are always coming for us. Because who is in control of the future? Our resurrected king. And we know what's waiting for us. We're all headed there. And it may come sooner than later for some of us. It may come sooner than later for all of us. Maranatha. But for all of us, it's always getting better. And that's where our hope is. Because Christ is ruling and reigning. And he's bringing to fruition everything he has planned for the future. So love hopes. Because if our hope, our future is secure, then we can risk this life now in order to love others. We can go to China for three years because your hope is secure. And give your life away for the good of the people in China because your hope is secure. Your future is secure in Christ. Love endures all things. Love never gives up. Love doesn't quit. In the end, love does win. And I mean that in the biblical sense. Because of that, it is never a wrong thing to love someone. You don't have to pray about that. Just do it. You might have to pray about how to show them love, but never, should I love them or not? Yes. Love them. You never have to ask God if that's okay. One author put it like this. Love is a deep affection for, a delight in, and a commitment to acts of welfare, act for the welfare of another without regard for their loveliness. So you're not evaluating, is this person worth my love? You're just pouring it on them. Just pouring it on them. Because it's the same way you've received love. God loving us like that. Love is the overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interest of another regardless of the cost to oneself. As these spiritual gifts can be duplicated by the pagans... But this kind of love cannot be duplicated by those apart from Christ Jesus. You can go to other places this morning and you'll find better music, more charismatic or interesting speakers or communication. You'll find more comfortable chairs to sit in, maybe even a community you have more in common with. You can find better coffee or food, people you might think are more interesting or exhilarating to be around, people who make you feel better about yourself. But no one can and should be able to love like the church. No one. We, we can knock this out of the park and blow the minds of our city. If we're living this out and allowing this love to flow to us and through us, there is no other place on the earth like the church. No other place. Jesus said uh, it would mark us as a quality that makes us distinct. John 13, 35, by, all this, uh, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17, the great high priestly prayer The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Love is essential. Love is extraordinary. I never have outlines with alliteration. just worked out today. Extraordinary means just very unusual, great, remarkable. Not, Not ordinary to our world, but the reality is This supernatural love that is extraordinary to our world should be very ordinary to us. It should be the air we breathe, the water we swim in, just the life we live. Love is essential. Love is extraordinary. And love is imminent, imminent with an E, so it would match, which means distinguished, preeminent, nothing like it. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies... They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the controversy with this part of the text is that this text is used by some people who advocate for a position called cessationism. That the sign gifts have ceased and are no longer operation and functional for the local church. Mainly the more miraculous gifts, tongues, prophecy, uh, miracles, and healings. Now, none of the elders or elders in assessment in the Crossing Church hold that position. Although there are pastors, scholars, theologians that we love and learn from who do hold that position. Uh, This is not a a, a first tier issue. It's more of a second tier issue for the local church. And as I mentioned a few, um, the last two weeks rather... We, as pastors of this church, were praying and asking for the Spirit to lead us and guide us to see what this should look like in the crossing. How can we be be a people who believe that all these gifts are still functional and operational in the life of the local church, available to us as God ordains, and be a people who earnestly desire these things? As uh, 12.31 and 14.1 and other parts of this passage speak of. Never mocking are belittling any gift of the Spirit, always wanting to see all gifts used in a way that is edifying to the church and is a sign to unbelievers that God is here. Gifts that when used point us to the gospel but are not the gospel, so they don't become preeminent. Gifts that God gives because He loves us and wants us to be stronger and healthier as a body of believers, the body of Christ. Gifts that we won't function imperfectly, we will make mistakes with, but we're not going to avoid them just because we're afraid of making mistakes. Gifts that will be used in decency and in order to glorify Him and allow His power to be seen in our midst. And so pray for us as we navigate this path forward, for us as a church to encourage and invite the Spirit to do this work as He chooses in us. Cessationism is not our path forward because we don't believe it's what the Bible teaches. It would take a a lot longer time to refute cessationism or to give our perspective on why we don't believe that's a biblical position. But one of the arguments used to support that view is this passage. And the argument goes something like this. There's a different verb for prophecy and knowledge when Paul says they will pass away than the verb that is used when it says tongues will cease. And while prophecy and knowledge will end when the perfect comes, mentioned in verse 10, tongues will cease on their own, fade away on their own. And by the way, this is not the strongest part of their argument. Most of scholarship has dismissed this interpretation. And the problem with the interpretation is the context. Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues pass away or cease happens when the perfect comes. And so the debate is, what is the perfect that comes? Some have said the perfect coming was the completion of the canon of Scripture. But even Paul would have no conception of that as he's writing this. Paul believed he was going to be alive when Christ would return. He had no concept in his mind that other apostles were writing letters that would be combined into this thing called the New Testament added to the Old Testament to be the canon of Scripture in about 40 years after he's writing this. And that we'd still be waiting for Christ to return 2,000 years later and the church would use these scriptures for the last 2,000 years. Some suggest that the perfect is when the church reaches a level of maturity that sign gifts are no longer needed, but who who defines that? Who makes that determination? Plus, why are the more miraculous gifts associated with the immature when Paul himself says in chapter 14 he's spoken in tongues more than anyone? Plus, notice the other conditions that will be present when the perfect comes. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully 
known. So if the perfect has come and tongues have ceased, are we experiencing that life? Not at all. So the perfect coming that triggers the end of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge has to be something else. And the best interpretation is the second coming of Christ. The full consummation of God's kingdom, the eternal state when all things will be made new. When that, time's come, when that time comes, these gifts will no longer be necessary. They have a function now, but not always. That's Paul's point in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul is not saying that the operation of the spiritual gifts now is a sign of an immature church or immature believer. They are entirely appropriate for this age. But in the age to come, they won't be needed. In the age to come, we're going to have perfect worship, full knowledge, perfect discernment of God's will, perfect communion, perfect communication. Now, spiritual gifts are manifestation of God's presence and power so that God can be seen in this sin-cursed world where sometimes it's hard to see God. But in the eternal state... Is it going to be hard to see God? When His glory is so bright, we don't even need the sun anymore? Then we won't need the gifts to manifest the presence and power of God. So spiritual gifts have that function now, along with Scripture and, the, and how the Spirit works, but then we won't need that functioning of spiritual gifts. In this age, we need them. We need spiritual gifts. We need evangelism. We need the preaching of the gospel. We need these bodies, physical bodies. All good things God has given and glorifies himself through to accomplish his work for us to enjoy. But absolutely not needed in the age to come. We're not going to be preaching the gospel to lost people in heaven. We're not going to have these physical bodies, thank goodness, in heaven. They're good for now, not needed then. But what is the carryover from this age to the next? The carryover is love. Love. Love is always present now and forever. And so as we operate in these spiritual gifts, if we want to see, if we want to work now on, on what matters then, love is the bridge. Okay? If we want to see the work that we're doing now, lay up treasures in heaven, accomplish things for eternity, love is the bridge. Love being the engine behind what we do is the bridge to make that happen, to bear spiritual fruit that lasts forever. This is part of laying up treasure in heaven. This is part of the up there coming down here. This is part of the invisible kingdom of God becoming visible. So faith, hope, and love abide, verse 13 says, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? I've always thought of it in terms of love being eternal and faith and hope not being eternal. In fact, that was my third E. It was a lot easier. Love is eternal. Faith will become sight. Hopes will be realized in the eternal state. They're no longer needed, but love will be needed, so love is eternal, and therefore it's greater. But I was challenged to think differently by one author about understanding what hope and faith are. Faith is not just trust and belief in God that you can't see, but faith is dependence on God. Well, that's not going to change in the eternal state. We're still going to be depending on God for everything in the eternal state, so faith is not going away, even though faith has become more clear and and easier because we see God. Hope is not wishful thinking, but rock-solid confidence in a person who is sovereign and controls all things, God himself. So our hope isn't just yearning for something, but our hope is a person, God, that he is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. God is 
Our hope is not in good things coming true, but our hope is in the good one, the wise one, the loving and kind one, the most powerful one, accomplishing in the future what he's determined will take place. So hope for us is a person more than wishful thinking. And God's not going anywhere in the eternal state. Therefore, our hope will still be present, just realized. So love is not the greatest because it's eternal and faith and hope will be gone. So it has to be something else. And it goes back to who God is. Who is God, especially when it comes to the origins of love? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. How did God love the world? What manner did he love the world? That he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love. How do we know love? How do we know what love is? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, 7-12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we had loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. A few verses later. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The Bible never says God is hope or God is faith. God is the source of our hope. God is the object of our faith. But God is love. And that's why love is greater. Because this kind of love is God. So the question from earlier, why is love so essential? And apart from love-empowered spiritual gifts, we actually accomplish nothing for God in His kingdom is this. Because love is God, without love is without God. If love is missing, God's missing. If spiritual gifts and relationships devoid of this kind of love are spiritual gifts and relationships devoid of God. A church devoid of this kind of love is a church that's devoid of God and is no longer a church. It is just a social club. So wherever we see this love lacking in our life, we must go to the source. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God poured out his love for us by destroying our sin on the cross in his son Jesus. And because our sins have been paid for, he now can receive us fully and freely as his adopted sons and daughters, fully and forever loved by our Father in heaven. He's not holding back at all. He's just pouring it out, not because he saw us as worthy or we've earned it or we've proven ourselves good enough. While we were sinners, God demonstrated his love. Guess what? That is the same condition in which we have to love each other. While we are still sinful and sinning against each other and failing each other, we love each other. A few verses earlier, Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So in whatever way love is lacking in your life or in this church, our response is, let's run to Jesus. We have to go to him for help. 
um, I was in a, a difficult texting conversation a while back. One of those texting conversations where you have a lot of time to think, pray, and ponder, how, how do I want to respond to this? And without love, I was just wanting to be angry, just accusatory, just kind of mean-spirited. But God was incredibly gracious to me to give me time to think, process, and pray. And as I'm thinking and processing and praying, the Spirit of God just led me to begin to think about this person as from the perspective of my Father in Heaven. And I began to ask, okay, Father, they're your kid. How would you love them in this situation? How would you treat them in this situation? What would you say to them? And, and like, like a switch was flipped, the floodgate of love just overwhelmed my heart for them. Because it wasn't me trying to love this person and the futility of my efforts. It was me simply being a conduit for the Father's love to love them. I know we want that as a church. I know that's who we want to be. I know we want to be this kind of community of love that that transforms us, that transforms our city, that anybody who comes into contact with, with the crossing isn't amazed at our theological brains. God help us. But they're amazed at our selfless, sacrificial love for each other or for them. It's possible, but only possible as we're depending upon the Lord to supply this. And the good thing about our Father in heaven, he loves to answer this prayer. (laughs) Father, will you help me love my wife, my kids with this kind of love? Father, will you help me love my brothers and sisters in Christ with this kind of love? Will you show me how to do it? Will you energize that? Will you flow through me so that I can be that kind of person? And he's like, yes, I'm in. That's exactly what I want to do. We help us love our city. We help us love our neighbors. We help us love the lost. We help us love people who aren't like us. We help us love the people who, 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 who serve us when we go into restaurants or gas stations or, or wherever. We help us love our coworkers and our classmates. And he's just up there just pouring it out, just pouring his love into us so that his love can flow through this city. And this city will be shaken by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the love of God. And he will get all the glory. Because people will come and look at us and be like, y'all, you're a part of this? Yeah. Not because we're amazing, but because he's amazing. So let's be that church. Father, so thankful, so overwhelmed that this is who you are and thus who we are. And so let us understand, let us rest, let us be secure, to be at peace with the love that we have received from you through your son Jesus. In whatever ways we feel convicted, may we see that as a good work of the Spirit, and I pray you would call us to repentance and trust again in the gospel of Jesus Christ to remind us of who we are and what you can and will accomplish through us. If we feel condemnation or shame, may we recognize that that is the work of the enemy and we are your child, never condemned. 
And Father, I pray especially for whoever may be here who has never fully received, embraced, enjoyed this love of their Father in heaven that you've given us through your Son, Jesus. May today be the day of their salvation. May today be the day that they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and come alive in Christ and know they are forever fully loved by you. And nothing can take that away. Thank you for making all this possible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.